The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. So throughout this series, it's required some imagination. We have transported ourselves over to a large, mysterious mansion that we're exploring. It's got secret passageways and corridors. So each week, it's required uh, that we're using our imagination. And so here we are, week three, part three. You guys, are you still with me? Can you still use your imagination with me today? Can you do that? Awesome. Okay. I, was, I believed in you. Okay. So, so we're going to use our imagination. So I want you to imagine... Okay, wait. Before I go any further, I just have to apologize. The last two weeks, at this part, you know, we transition over to the mansion. There's this really cheesy harp sound that's just way over the top, way too on the nose, if you ask me. Okay, and so we've dispensed with that. But I just want to apologize. Never fear, we're, we're not going to have that going forward. All right, so anyway, I want you to imagine with me that we are in a man. Oh, my goodness. Is it still going? It's the worst harp yet. Just... We're suffering through this together. This is just so unnecessary. I've lost all control. I have lost all control of the series. I I don't know what to say to you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you had to walk through that. Okay. We're in a mansion, apparently, using our imagination. Here we are in a old library, a mysterious library, and um, we're, we're in this mansion. Now, the reason why we're here, kind of the inspiration for this series is when I was a child, uh, one of the most memorable Christmases when I was young, I was five years old, and my family and I, we stayed, and I've shared this with you the last couple weeks, my family and I, we, we went up to a distant relative. I had never met this relative before. I didn't really even hadn't heard the relative of, uh, before, but we stayed in their old house, and it was up north. It was the first Christmas I ever saw snow as a Florida kid. And I remember my sister and I, we were in this old house, and, and it really grew in my imagination. It's grown in the, in, over the years to this gigantic mansion with these corridors and secret passages, and we spent that entire week looking for treasures, which, you know, we never really found, but it was a really fun uh, weekend, and so we, a uh, fun week that, that Christmas. And so we're using that as a running illustration because the text that we're looking at, it describes the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and that he is a gift to us. And there's very real treasures that we get from the gift of the Messiah. And so I want to show you this text. Uh, Go ahead and open with me to Isaiah chapter 9. It's one of the most famous passages that we read at Christmas time from the Old Testament. But it's Isaiah chapter 9. And um, we're going to look at verse 6. It's kind of the anchor verse to this passage. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. It says this, For to us a child is born. To us a son is, what's the word there? Given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This text in Isaiah, this is hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, maybe around 700 years roughly before the time of Jesus. And it says that a a child will be born, a son will be given. It will be a gift to us. This Messiah will be given to us. And he will be a ruler. He'll be a, a king. The government will be upon his shoulders. This king will come that will be a gift to us. It's not just that one day the Messiah is this great man, and then at Christmas time we go back and we celebrate his birth because he was a great man and a great leader. No, no. It's the Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is a gift to us. And so we receive this gift. When we receive this gift, Jesus is offered to humanity. He's offered as a gift from God the Father to us. And each one of us is given an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as a gift. You may know about Jesus. You maybe even call yourself a Christian or maybe you go to church But Jesus is a gift. Salvation is a gift that you have to receive. You'll be given an opportunity to receive that gift today. It is a gift we receive. When we receive the gift of that son, that child that was born, that king, that ruler, when we receive that gift, what we get, the benefits into our lives are almost indescribable. It is very real treasure, not just on some transcendent level. There is very real treasure in our lives that we get by receiving Jesus Christ, by receiving this Messiah, this Son. And it lists these four titles of this king, this ruler. It's not an uncommon thing in antiquity and even today that rulers are given all of these titles and these, of these, these four titles, we've been looking at one each this, these last few weeks. So the first is he's a wonder of a counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's that warrior champion hero God who fights on our behalf. We receive that in our life when we receive the gift of, of the Son. And then it says that he's an everlasting Father. We're going to touch down on that one today, and we're going to explore the treasure that is when you receive Jesus, you have an everlasting Father. Okay, now let's pick this apart a little bit. That um, Hebrew word for Father is the word Ab, as in like Abraham. So the name Abraham is Father of a multitude. Ab is the prefix there that means Father. Now, in, um, the, in the New Testament, this actually plays out in an interesting way. It was not uncommon for God to express himself in, in many different ways in the Old Testament. One of them was as a father, but Jesus took this to another level. So when Jesus prayed, he referred to God as father, but in one of the, in one of the, the prayers he made in Uh, particular, the gospel writers preserved the actual Aramaic that he spoke. Now, let me just give a little background. So hang with me here for a second. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in ancient Greek. We translate both of them from ancient manuscripts right into English. 
The, the New Testament in Greek was written by the, and that first generation of eyewitnesses was written in Greek because that was the language of the known world. Ever since the Greek empire had expanded a few hundred years before, they used that language because they wanted the whole world to know about Jesus. So they wrote it in Greek. The language that Jesus actually spoke and that, mo that his followers would have more natively spoke was Aramaic, which is very closely related to Hebrew. Just in that their time, they spoke in Aramaic, but they're very closely related. On a few select occasions, Jesus is typically, he's, the things he said are recorded in Greek, but on a very few occasions, the gospel writers would preserve the actual Aramaic that he said and then translate it for the Greek-speaking world into Greek. And in one of those very few occasions, and they did that, obviously you really want to slow down if you can detect that's what's going on when you're reading your English version because the way it was put in Aramaic was obviously so important that they're like, here is the actual word he used. And in one of those occasions was the night before he's arrested and crucified. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is the very beginning of what we call his passion, his suffering. And he's had the Last Supper. It's the night of Passover. He's, he's, while they're having the Passover, he starts a new covenant. He defines a new meal going forward for his followers, where he takes it with bread and wine. And he breaks the bread and he says, uh, this new covenant is, is uh, because my body is broken for you. And he pours out the wine. This new covenant is because my blood is shed for you. And he says, take this. And uh, he serves that. Then they go out to the, to the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, watch here and pray. And then he goes off by himself and his agony begins. And he says this. He says, Abba, Father, Please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done, not my will. And he calls out in his moment of desperation, asking, is there any way that I don't have to walk through this? The Aramaic, it's, it's, in our English, it says Abba, Father, um, because in, in, the, in the original Greek, it's Abba, meaning Aramaic, and then the Greek word for father. So we're just translating. They preserve the Aramaic Abba. They, and the, the gospel writer preserves that phrase Abba because that is a very intimate word for father. You can see how closely related it is to the Hebrew word Ab in Aramaic Abba. This is the, the intimate term for father. So there's like, like dad and dada, daddy. Like my kids call me different things when they're, uh, when they're real little. They call me dada. Then eventually daddy, if they're mad at me, it's dad. You know, it's kind of like extends that into a multi-syllable word. Okay. Um, they never really refer to me as father. You know, they never call me that. You know, at the dinner table, you know, they're, they're like, dad, can I have dessert? It's never, father, may I have dessert now? You know, it's never like that, okay? It's very like formal, like that's not what it is. Um, it's um, dad, it's actually Abba. You can almost imagine a little kid saying it like that, right? Abba is like the intimate way in Aramaic you would 
you would refer to God. This was a new category. It's one thing referring to God as Father. It's another thing to refer to God as Abba. As this intimate. And you almost hear the childlike request of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, he's known all eternity. There's been one plan. And even in that moment, he's exercising the intimate relationship that he has with his father by saying, is there any way I don't have to go through this? Abba. There's an intimacy in how Jesus refers to God as Abba. But I want you to put a pin in that. This talks about how uh, through Jesus we have an everlasting father. Jesus takes that to another level and, call, and refers to, to God, not just as Ab, but Abba. Okay, put a pin in that. How is God our father, our everlasting father? How does the Messiah bring this about? Let's look a little bit into the context. I want you to go back to um, verse 3 and look at one of the things that this uh, Messiah will have done. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 3. Here's what it says. You have multiplied the nation... You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He says, you have given them joy like the joy at harvest time. Now, again, there's so much in the Old Testament that has kind of an agricultural context um, most of us did not grow up in, in agricultural environments. Maybe you did, but the, probably the majority of us South Floridians did not grow up in that environment. And so we have to really understand kind of that agricultural environment in order to appreciate the joy that comes at the harvest time. And so here's what we're going to do. I think there's another part of our mansion that if we go there, it's going to help us appreciate um, this, this idea of the harvest. So we're gonna have to go down to the cellar and I'm gonna try and make my way down to the cellar. I think I can get there if I go through our secret passageway here. Uh, hang with me. All right, I've gotta figure out how to get down to the cellar. Let's see, I've been that way and I've been that way. I wonder if there's another way to get down there. What's over, what's underneath this chute? Is this an old, is this an old elevator? I bet this will lead down there. Let's see where this goes. All right, well, here we go. All right. Close the door. Who's this? Oh, no. Don't. Just leave it. Don't press any buttons. Don't do it. Don't even think about it. No, oh, all the buttons. Oh, great. Now you broke it. Hope you're happy. We're stuck here. This is... Oh, you gotta be kidding me. 
hope you're happy with yourself. You realize this whole thing, the lights are off, can't even figure out how to get out of here and go up. We gotta get out of here. Where's the emergency exit? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This I, this mansion's crazy. Okay, I, I don't know what to say. Um, all right, we're here in the cellar, and a cellar is where you would bring in uh, the crops at the harvest time. So if you're a vineyard, this is where you would bring. This is where you'd store the wine from the most recent crop, the most recent harvest. If you're an orchard, this is where you would bring in the the fruits of of the harvest. You'd bring it here into uh, the cellar. And it, if you're living in an agricultural time, your year is really built on the, the harvest is a, a really important time of the year. Now, I, I got a small window into this when I went off to college. I grew up down here in South Florida, and um, I went off to college in northern Indiana. That's where I met Rebecca. She, she grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, so neither one of us grew up in rural areas. We grew up in, in, uh, in the city, and we, uh, we meet here in, in this uh, northern Indiana. And I remember there was a part of the year in the fall, uh, the first uh, semester, where all of a sudden, like, like a dozen or a couple dozen of the people on my floor were just gone. I'm like, where did they all go? And like, well, they went home to like the harvest. And I'm like, like a farm? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, they still have those? And they're like, where did you think you got your food? I'm like, I don't know, like just the grocery store. I thought they just like made it there or whatever. And so like the harvest was like, it's an actual part, a significant part of the year. Like when autumn comes for us, it's just like pumpkin spice lattes. Like that's all it means for us, okay? But if you're living in an agricultural environment in a society, the harvest is a pivotal time of the year. It marks significant parts of the year. And so this was a way it was, the way it was in ancient Israel. They're very uh, agricultural. That was like one of the main parts of their society. And so God had prescribed by the law, he had prescribed many different feasts and, and several of the most prominent. There were several feasts. Three, there were three that were most prominent where everyone would come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And of those three, you have the Feast of Passover, you have the Feast of Weeks, those happened in the spring, and then in the fall, you had the Feast of Tabernacles. Those first two in the spring were aligned at the same time as the harvest. They happened right around the time of the harvest. So the first one was the Feast of the Passover. That is where they were reminded that they were saved out of Egypt, death passed over them. They would bring a, a lamb, a spotless, unblemished lamb, every family, and they would offer it to the Lord to be reminded that they were saved out of Egypt. And by the blood of the lamb that was painted over their doorpost, death passed over. And so they would celebrate Passover. At the same time as that main feast, 
there were two other feasts that happened right at that same time. This is why sometimes it gets a little bit confusing if you're reading through this part of the Old Testament. Passover then kicked off another feast, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days. Because at that time of Passover, they're eating unleavened bread, and they would do that for seven days. They've removed the yeast out of their house. That yeast uh, represents sin that's being that they're removing out of their house. So they would eat bread that had no yeast in it. It was it was flat like a like a cracker. Okay, it didn't rise. It had no no leaven, no yeast in it. Okay, on the so there was the feast of Passover. Then you have uh, the feast of unleavened bread. On the uh, that the Passover kicked off. Also in that time, kicked off at Passover on the third day from Passover you have the Feast of first fruits. I know this is confusing, but hang in there with me because this is important. At the Feast of first fruits, this is the third day from Passover, what they would do is they would each bring a sheaf of, we'll say, barley, maybe something like this. They would bring a sheaf of barley and they would offer it as an offering because the barley is the first crop that they would harvest and they would bring that sheaf as a first fruits. It was the feast of first fruits. So they've harvested their barley. Before they eat any of their barley, they are offering the first sheaf of uncooked barley to the Lord. The priest would take that sheaf and he would wave it before the Lord, burn some of it, um, and it would be an offering before the Lord. And then they would be able to eat of the fruit of the barley harvest. You follow me so far? Okay. 49, they would count 49 days from the Feast of First Fruits where they would wave the barley sheaf. They would count 49 days from there. And then you had the second great solemn feast the next day on the 50th day, that was the Feast of Weeks. They would call this the Feast of Weeks because it was, they'd count 49 days. That's seven sevens or a week of weeks. You follow me? Feast of Weeks, they'd count 49 days. And on the 50th day, they would offer another first fruits offering because now it was the beginning of the wheat harvest. And before they ate any of the wheat that they would harvest, they would offer a wheat loaf to the Lord. But this one was different. They would not offer a sheaf of the wheat. They would offer a loaf of bread baked with the wheat. And they would bring that to the priest. The priest would wave this before the Lord and would offer it before the Lord. Now notice the difference. This is a, a loaf of bread. It's got leaven. It's got yeast. It's, it's risen. You know, it's got, it's, it's got the, the leaven in it. Whereas the barley in the Feast of First Fruits, it is just the grain. There's no leaven in it at all. And remember, because it's right during the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Follow me on the difference? Both, are a, uh, both feasts are a type of 
first fruits offering. They would offer that sheaf of barley before they would, they would themselves partake of any of the barley harvest. They would offer that loaf of wheat bread before they themselves would enjoy any of the fruit of that wheat harvest. Why? Because it was an offering of first fruits to God. Now, why would they hold back from cooking, enjoying, using, selling, doing anything with that harvest before they offered the first fruits of it back to God? Why would they do that? Well, you see that embedded in their celebrations, and it's really encapsulated beautifully in this one psalm. You've got to hear this, Psalm 65. They uh, undoubtedly, during the harvest, they would sing Psalms like this. Listen to Psalm 65. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. This is a harvest psalm. Listen to this. This is beautiful language. You, this is to God, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Beautiful psalm. I love that line. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. You just picture this wagon that's been brought out into an orchard or into a grain field, and they've piled on the harvest so much that even as they're carting it back home, I mean, like it's so overflowing with abundance, it's like falling down along the tracks, and it, you'd have to follow behind it, picking up the abundance that's overflowing out of, out of that wagon track at the time of harvest. What's the point? God is providing all of that harvest. God's providing all of it. Uh, I sometimes wonder if um, our distance from an agricultural context, uh, we, we lose something in kind of the instinctual nature of how dependent we are on God for provision. And not that it's like good or bad that we are agricultural or not, but I almost wonder if that context like lends itself some, a little bit more intuitively as a farmer. Okay, and I'm just imagining here, like this is so far outside my uh, personal uh, life experience, but I just imagine as an ancient farmer, I mean, you have skill. I mean, you have things you've learned. You have innovations that's been passed down to you from, from your family, and maybe you've learned from friends. But in the end, you plant you water, you wait. You, you watch over it. You keep, you keep trying your best to keep pests away and you try your best to, to, to make sure that it's, it's, it's cared for and you're, but you're waiting. You're not like planting and you're not like every day like digging up the seed to see where it's at and closing it up again. It's just some little miracles happening underneath that soil that you're trusting is happening. 
and you're trusting that if you, you fertilize it and you make sure that there's irrigation and, and the right amount of sunlight, but then even then, you're trusting that there's not a drought. You could do everything right and it gets scorched by a drought or suffocated by a flood. Or maybe the conditions are just right with, with enough water and enough sunlight and they're growing up beautifully and then some swarm of pest comes through and devours all of it. I mean, in the end, you work hard. You get your hands dirty. But, but in that moment when you bring all the harvest in and, and if you're, each crop, you're bringing it all in at once. It's not just dripping in throughout the year on the 1st and the 15th. You're bringing it all in at once. And as you're looking at all of it, you're like, I worked hard, but Lord, if it wasn't for you, I mean, anything could happen. And so they have this, this moment and these feasts that God is weaving into their year. He says, hey, here's what I want you to do. When you harvest the barley, before you before you do anything with it, wave the sheaf before me as an offering back, as an acknowledgement that I, I'm the one that provided this. When you harvest the wheat, and in the joy of that provision, how did God wire it for his people to eke out the joy of that provision to celebrate it the best. He said, take the first loaf of the wheat harvest and offer it back to me as a reminder that I'm the one that provided it for you. I think sometimes for us, it's even, yeah, we can celebrate that. I think sometimes for us, um, we're, we're maybe just uh, in the grind of it and we're, it's, it's sometimes not as intuitive for, for us, because it's not all at once and it's not one big, it's just a daily grind and it's like a, and however it is that, that your, your income comes in, it, it kind of drips along the way. But God is so explicitly clear in this um, about provision. He wants us to understand provision. Look at what he says in Deuteronomy 8.18. I mean, this is for all generations of God's people. Look what he says. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Here's what he wants. He says, listen, I'm going to provide for you the joy of the harvest, the key to enjoying the harvest, this is one of those counterintuitive things that we do not have hardwired in us and the world does not teach us this. This is one of those things that the word of God has to reprogram our thinking. We have to let the word of God transform us so we don't continue on in the patterns of this world as it says in Romans 12. The word of God is saying, God's like, I want you to have the joy of the harvest. 
I want, why would I provide a harvest if, without wanting you to enjoy it? I want you to have joy. The key to enjoying the harvest is understanding who the provider of the harvest is. You have a, the provider of the harvest is, is who? It's the Father. The one of the reasons we're told that God is our Father is because He provides for us out of His love for us. He can't help Himself. He's hardwired as a Father to provide. If we're going to fully enjoy His provision, we have to understand that He's the provider. Here's why that is so essential. Because left to our own thinking, left to kind of the world's way it's programmed, our natural flesh is programmed, and then just sprinkling in a little religion, here's how we would default operate. We would congratulate ourselves for the provision in our lives and then blame God when something comes up short that we thought that we deserved. We congratulate ourselves like, look, well, I've worked hard. Of course, this is mine. I worked hard. I, I made this. This is why I'm, I've worked so hard. And then when something's like, well, no, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be able to achieve this. I'm like, God, I need your help. I need your help. And then if it doesn't happen, I'm like, see, I don't know why I trust you, God. I don't know why I look to you. Like, you're never going to provide that for me. See, if our default mode is I'm providing for myself, then my relationship with God is only when there's something I can't quite provide. And then I have this hit or miss relationship with God. And oftentimes I'm just mad that God's not providing all that I want. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, you know, he says, I don't, know that what we, I don't know that we really want a father. I think more often what we want is not a good father. We want a senile grandfather that spoils us rotten. He says, we want that senile grandparent that no matter what we ask, they're like, sure. Ice cream for dinner, great idea. We, 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 want, we expect God, anything we ask God, dump it over on us. He's like, I'm too good to do that to you. Of course, I'm not going to give everything to you that you ask for. You're a child. You don't know what's best for you. It's out of my love that I say no sometimes. And if we take a step back, we know, we know that. If we poll each of us individually, does obscene wealth automatically make a human happy? Every one of them would say, of course not. But I'm the exception. <laughs> it would make me happy. So God, I don't know why you're not providing. And so we, we get so sucked into what the world says. But what's so great here is that God says, I'm going to give you the joy of the harvest. I'm going to provide perfectly for you and give you something. You're actually no longer even dependent on the harvest for joy. I'm going to give you more than the harvest. He says, I'm going to give you the provider so that you have perpetual joy 
no matter what the harvest is, because he's tailoring your life perfectly so that you can trust the provider. You don't just get the harvest, you get more than the harvest, you get the provider. That's what the Messiah does. Let me bring this over to what we're talking about today. Let's think about this in our own lives. What does it say that the Messiah does? What the Messiah does in our lives, Jesus provides the way to the provider. Jesus opens up the way to the Father. Listen to what it says in, in Romans chapter 8. Look at what he says. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus broke the paradigm and referred to God in the most intimate terms of Abba as a child calling out to his father. And Jesus provided the way for you to have that same relationship with Almighty God. Jesus came to earth. He dies on a cross, taking all of your sin on himself, leaving you spotless and clean perpetually. He dies on the cross, going down into death, and then rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death on your behalf. And he says now, because you're washed clean, you too, if you receive the gift of the Son, you will be adopted in and you will have God as your Father. But notice what it says in Isaiah 9, He's your father. He's your Abba father, but he's your everlasting father. Can you imagine with me what that means? That means his provision. His provision is immeasurable. I mean, God has pretty high capacity. Everything belongs to him. He has everything at his fingertips. And anything he doesn't have, he can speak into existence. He has everything at his fingertips. And he pours provision in abundance. His wagon tracks overflow. So you say, but why then does it feel like some seasons he's not, he's not blessing me in abundance? See, it goes back to if I start from a framework of looking at everything in my life and saying, Lord, everything that I have is an expression of your abundance. It's all because of you. You have given this to me. Left to my own self, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna operate in the delusion that I've done this. You've done this. I'm gonna operate in that everything is from your abundance. Now I'm walking through life, constantly seeing the abundance he's provided. And so then when I get to a season where he's stretching me, he's pushing me, he, he's saying no to things that I'm asking. He, he's things that maybe are a disappointment in my life. I actually say, well, I know you're an abundant God. Like I know that's who you are. So that if you've withheld, you love me so much as a doting father, there must be a really, really good reason that that thing I asked for was not good enough. And there's something else. There's some other reason for good. 
that you are that you are going to be providing. Even when you say no, even when you withhold, I am expecting on the other end there's a reason for good because that's a promise. He's a God of abundance. His provision as almighty God, his provision as the everlasting father is everlasting. It is immeasurable. It is immortal. It is today and tomorrow and every day and into eternity. It is immeasurable. It's immortal. It's immovable. Christian, you've got to hear me. Sometimes we as Christians say, well, I've been good this week, so he's going to provide for me. Praise God, his provision is not based on what you do, but on based on what Jesus did. That is what your provision is based on. It is immovable in your life. His fatherhood, his provision is immovable. It is immeasurable. It's immortal. It's immovable. He is your provider. When you receive the son, you get an everlasting father, and he wants to wa- us to walk in that understanding of his abundant provision. Can I challenge you in two practical ways? Two practical ways. Many Christians continue to walk in that principle of first fruits. Many Christians, uh, this is a practice for Rebecca and I as well, and we've seen so much blessing from doing this. Every time there's an increase in our life, every time that there's a blessing, every time there's a provision, every time income comes into my life, the first thing before anything else, before taxes, before bills, the first thing is I give back to the Lord because I want to set my framework in saying, God, you've provided everything. This was not my doing. This was your doing. I offer it back to the Lord because I want to perpetually see his abundance, offering it first back to the Lord. Here's the second thing. If we know that he is providing all for our harvest, that then frees us to seek first his harvest. If I know that my harvest is taken, he's like, hey, you're my son or my daughter. I'm going to take care of you. I can't not. You're my child. So here's what I want you to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you because there's a harvest he's after. What's that harvest? It's souls. You know, it was on, um, I want to close with this. It was on um, Passover, Feast of Passover, that um, Jesus instituted a new covenant. It was on Passover where there killing the, the lambs, the Passover lambs, the, the lambs that had no blemish. It was on that very day that the true lamb of God, Jesus who had never sinned without blemish, offered himself on the cross. And by the blood of that lamb, death passes over us. And all the leaven in our lives is put away from us. And so then it was on the third day from that Passover, while they're waving a sheaf of the first fruits of the first harvest, that Jesus rose again from the dead, the first fruits from the dead, one without blemish. But that's just the first fruits. 
there'd be a greater harvest to come of souls saved from death. Jesus was just the first fruits. And it was counted 49 days. And then on the 50th day, on the Pentecost, when they're now waving a new first fruits, a loaf, an offering with leaven. When the great first harvest of Pentecost, the first harvest of the church was harvested for the kingdom of God. Souls like you and me that have sin, but because of the work of Jesus have been harvested to life by the work of Jesus on Pentecost. The first fruits of a mighty harvest that continues to that day. That is the great harvest. And he looks at you and I and he says, the fields are white with harvest. And he's sending us as laborers. He's even sending you this week as a laborer inviting people with you next weekend, loving on people, inviting people to your table, calling you even this week to go and get the harvest for his kingdom. He says, look, I will take care of the harvest for your life. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We're gonna close our time in communion, celebrating that, the, that offering of Jesus, that broken bread and that shed blood. But before we do that, let's go before the Lord in prayer. The greatest provision, Father, that you have provided for us is our salvation. I pray that today there would be souls that would find that provision in their life. Maybe you're sitting here or sitting there in Cooper City. Maybe you're watching at home. And what I mentioned earlier about receiving the Son, you say, I've never done that. I've never put my faith in Jesus. I've just been trying to act like a Christian or go to church, but I want to actually receive the son and the work he did on my behalf. I want to receive that gift. I want to challenge you, receive salvation today. And if you want to receive the son, you can do that just with a simple prayer of surrender. Can I lead you in that prayer? It's between you and Jesus because he hears you. Make this your prayer. Say silently in your, right there where you're at, say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. You did the work of defeating sin. You defeated death so that I can be forgiven and I can live forever. I give you my life. I make you my king. And it is my joy to serve you. Thank you. Father, for adopting me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. 
If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.